Lord Jesus, as we jump into your word this uh, evening, God, I pray. Um, God, I pray for clarity and understanding. I pray that, uh, that you would show us and remind us uh, who you are. And, and when I say that, uh, God, when, when uh, we go back to the times where this section of Scripture was written, when these events took place, would you remind us of what it meant to those people for these things to happen? Would you remind us that you're still doing it? Uh, would you remind us of the power of Jesus and the power of your Spirit and the love of you, the Father, that we uh, would be wrapped up in who you are, be reminded of who we are, uh, so that we can be more involved in what you've called us to do. So, Lord, I pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, this morning, uh, super exciting, we got to go to our New Life Centers, put on uh, or hosted this event with the Players Association, Major League Baseball Players Association. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a massive baseball fan. I enjoy it because I played it, uh, but I don't know. Uh, it's not like one of my favorite things, but I love, I love those kind of events. And so they had, I don't know, maybe 12 different Major League Baseball players there. We didn't know who it was going to be. And so we went and we took the boys and, and we kept saying, hey, we're going to get to meet like real live, like out on the field baseball players. And so the boys were pretty pumped. I was pretty pumped. Ray pretended like she was pretty pumped so that we could all remain pretty pumped. And so uh, 30 degrees, standing on a sidewalk uh, on uh, Lawndale and 27th, waiting to go meet people who we really don't know and don't have any vetted interest in, but we thought it would be cool. And we get there, and it was a little uh, uh, kind of rough, uh, trying to find who they were and where they were. It's really hard to identify anybody, especially a, a sports player, without their name on the back and a jersey number. Uh, when all you've got to go off is this, because they're wearing a stocking hat and a mask, I don't know who's who. So the boys are like, who's that one? I'm like, I think that's Judy that lives three blocks away. I don't think she's anybody. I don't know. Like, it's hard to tell. I don't know what's going on. And so um, we kind of worked our way through. We got some cool stuff, and we're standing there, and we realize all the players are on the other side of the street, and we're over on this side of the street. And what they were doing was all these cars that were lined up were getting to go, and so we got there, and we couldn't even be with them. We couldn't see them. We weren't near them. We couldn't get autographs. And we didn't know who they were. All we knew was these were baseball players. And mind you, they could have been from UIC, and we wouldn't have known, right? Uh, and so anyways, I grew up a Cubs fan, so do with that what you want to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was about as sad as this last season. But, uh, so, uh, but anyways, I, I, I enjoy baseball, and we go to uh, games when we can and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and I knew uh, that Jason Hayward was going to be there, and so I was pretty excited. And we got there, and we found out that Tim Anderson from the Sox was actually there as well. And here's the crazy part. We were looking across the street, and they were right there. And we came to, like, see them and get autographs and hang out. And we couldn't get anywhere close. And there was this weird, like, disappointment of, is this all we came for? Is this it? Like, we, we just waited for 45 minutes out in the cold to be 40 feet away from everybody, right? And not actually being able to see who they are or what they're doing. Or it could have been one of their cousins because they didn't want to get cold either. So they just threw them out with a mask on. And so as kind of the, the uh, morning went on, it was freezing cold. We weren't as close as we thought we could be. Um, but I, if, I, I don't exactly enjoy the rules all the time. And so we were there, and I kind of realized, hey, there's some people that are going over here, and when they go over there, they're able to get back there. And once they get back there, it looks like they get to hang out with people. So I thought, let's just act like we belong. And so uh, me and the four Kaufman boys and Mrs. Kaufman, uh, we walked around, and we got to the area, and, and here was the crazy part, right? Not even intending this to be a sermon illustration this morning. There was a tent set up, and, and in the tent was all this baseball equipment, uh, gloves, baseball bats, baseballs that they were giving away, handing away, but the cool part was in the tent was Tim Anderson and Jason Hayward, and, and they were bringing like these baseball players around and all that kind of stuff to meet them, and, and one of my favorites was uh, they yelled out, hey, does any, is, do we have any left-handers out there? Well, Ray, Jonathan, and Samuel are left-handed. I was like, we got three left-handers, whatever it takes. Uh, yeah, we're in. Like, well, of course we do. 
And so, uh, so we get to go in. Uh, Jonathan uh, got to walk up. Not got to. He just, he's like me, so he just pushed his way forward. Um, and got to be uh, 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 seat Jason Hayward. He signed a ball, gave it to him. And we got to have all this stuff. Here, here's my point. It is with us, with God, if we can turn the corner real quick. A lot of times what ends up happening is we feel like there's this separation and we feel disappointed because he seems way over there and we seem way over here. And a lot of times it feels like, man, I've I've done the right stuff. I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to walk in the right ways. I thought this was going to get me there and I'm still far away and I feel disappointed. And what I love in the section of scripture we're going to read without really even intending it is God, uh, after the Garden of Eden and all that stuff falls flat on its face because people decide we like to figure out what life would be like on our own rather than life with God, uh, they walk away from God. And here's the, the, the thing that ends up happening. Shortly after we find God's intended intentional purpose and presence in his creation, the first humans, very much just like us, lose everything looking for something other than God to fulfill them. Anything other than God. And it could be uh, appearance, uh, it could be consumption, uh, it could be different friend groups, it could be whatever you call success, it could be money, it could be a position. But we'll chase all these things hoping they do for us what history's proven that they won't, or that we'll get it and we'll assume that that's the highest level of success we'll ever read, and forget that God has an intended creative purpose that he planned us for, and we'll miss all of that because we've set the bar so low chasing human success. And over and over, we see the story of Adam and Eve pop up in our life, and we keep doing the same things. We don't want to run back to God, so let's just try something else. I don't want to come back to him, so I'm just going to go do something else. And what ends up happening is they are, uh, uh, the word is banished. It's because they want to get away from God, they can no longer get back to God on their own. And so from the garden on, it's an effort to find places to be able to be with God. For God to be able to find these places to meet with his people. From the garden on, it's a story of God's continual showing up simply just to be with his people. And you can read the Bible however you want to. Here's what I would say after studying it and reading it for the last 20, 25 years. Is what I see is from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, right? It only takes three chapters of the Bible to screw stuff up royally. After the third chapter of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is one long story of God chasing down his people, uh, trying to help them see how much he loves them and how better their life is if they were just to be with him. So when we turn in Genesis chapter 12, we turn into the story of Abraham. And Abraham, God, gives this giant blessing in Genesis chapter 12 to leave everything. And here's his invitation Come with me to a place that I will show you. Americans need more detail than that, right? Where are we going? How long is it going to take us to get there? Are there snacks, right? I want to know, uh, leave all of this. And mind you, what we find when we read Scripture, Abraham was crazy rich. Tons of property, tons of things going on. Leave all of that and just trust me because where I'm taking you is better than everything you have now. And I love to Abraham, he says this. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's his promise. That's that's the thing at the end. That's the bargaining chip that says, I'm willing to do it as long as, God, you're with me. And I love that he says this, and you're going to bless people wherever you go. Not just that you will be a blessed person, but that because I'm with you, you will be a blessing to others. And Abraham goes and he has a son named Isaac. And that's a crazy story in and of itself to see how God shows up in our life. But Isaac, his son, shows up. And in Genesis chapter 26, now Isaac's not exactly who you want your kids to grow up to be. He's got some major shortcomings, some major falls. But here's what I love. God's plan has very little to do with how messed up Isaac is. It has everything to do with how great God is. And the promises he makes which he won't break. So to Isaac, he says the same thing that he said to his dad. He says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you. So for those of us that walk in with some baggage on us, feel like we've screwed some stuff up too bad, we've walked away from God too far, we've ignored him too much, we've Adam and Eve'd ourselves away from the garden way too often and way too easy, 
To people like Isaac, God says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you. And he says the same thing to Isaac as he did Isaac's dad. He says, and through you, all nations will be blessed. You want to know how the rest of the world, let's shorten it down. You want to know how the rest of your family, how the rest of your neighborhood and your co-workers are going to see the goodness of God. It's because God's with you and he's blessing you. And because he's blessing you, you will be a blessing to the nations. Isaac also has some kids, 12 of them. One of those, to Jacob, he says this when he blesses him at the very end. Uh, As Abraham blessed his son Isaac, Isaac is now blessing his son Jacob, who is renamed Israel, which means wrestles with God. And Jacob, he says this, all people will be blessed by you. Why? Because I'm with you. And we hear this story developing all throughout Scripture is, so long as I'm with you, you're going to be blessed, and you're going to be a blessing to everybody else. To the fallen, broken, messed up people that walked away from God because we want everything else other than him, he still clings to his people and says, I'm going to be with you. And when I'm with you, you're going to be blessed. And it's not just so you can walk around showing people how blessed you are. It's so that the nations will be blessed because you're there. And all the way at the beginning, it's not God saying, come back to the garden, come back, you left the garden, you messed it up, I need you back in the garden. It's God saying, wherever you go and to whomever you go to, they will be blessed because I am sending me with you to go with them. And Moses, as we continue into the book of Exodus, God shows up to Moses in a mighty powerful way. And he says, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of slavery, not just so you can say, look, we're not shackled in bondage anymore. We're out of slavery. We've been renewed. We've been restored. What he says is, I'm going to bring you out so you can become a mighty people that I already told you that you would be. I'm going to bring you out of that place of bondage so that you can be a blessing, so that you can live a blessed life and be a blessing because I'm still here. He says, I'm with you. And you will bring blessing to the nations. Here's what I love. Moses, in, this, in Exodus, doesn't encounter God in a garden. He encounters him on a mountain. But on that mountain and in Sinai, he's with God. I love that it says he sat and he ate in his presence and he receives God's word and is expected to then go and obey. How about that? Climb a mountain. You've got a million plus people with you. Uh, God's going to show up in a, a, a burning bush. You're going to sit and hang out and share a meal with him. And then you're supposed to lead all those people to go do something crazy. And the promise being this, but I'll be with you. This isn't you doing it on your own. This isn't your pet project that I'm expecting you to bear all the weight of. But you're going to go do this because I'm with you. And so what we start looking at is he calls Israel to go, but not to leave the presence of God. It's not the kind of going that he tells them in the garden where, hey, you're expected to leave my, uh, th- this place that I've created where it's perfectly set up for you. He doesn't tell them to go because you don't belong. He says to go because even while you're broken, I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to use you. There's still a purpose. There's still a plan. And even in this, he says, I want you to go and I'm going to be with you. Israel leaves the mountain of God, but they don't leave the presence of God. And so often for us, I think, when we're talking about the ritual stuff during communion, I feel like sometimes we'll come into places like this, and we'll worship in ways we're used to, and we'll leave some of these places of God, but we also kind of leave the presence of God. And Tuesday hits, and we're stuck, and we're struggling, and we've got mental games that are playing, and we're distracted, and we're defeated, and we feel like, why is this happening? God, why are you doing this to us? Why, 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 why? And all along the way, what ends up happening is we've left and we've forgotten that we're not traveling out here in the wilderness by ourselves, that God is with us, that he is still blessing us, and that we're still called to be the same blessing to everyone else as we go. Too often we stay stuck in these places or seasons where we've seen God show up. There's uh, uh, church families that I've been a part of before 
that I'm no longer a part of. And it's just God carries different seasons in different ways. And sometimes, not recently, but there's been times where it's like, man, I miss that family. I miss that church family. I miss being a part of those people. I miss different locations. There's things that God did in certain places, physical, geographical places, uh, in different church families, in different uh, relationships. And sometimes I long and I miss for those things, but God didn't say, stay on the mountain. Stay here. Even uh, if you remember the transfiguration where Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, and they're there, and God shows up, and the disciples are like, well, we should just like live up here. We saw God here. We saw crazy stuff here. And Jesus says, no, it's time to go down off the mountain. There's a mission we have to do. Yes, we've been with God, but now we have to go be with people because we've got marching orders, and we have the presence of God that's with us wherever we go. Just like hanging out with the baseball players we went to see, everything changes when you finally get to be with the people you came to be with. And God gets the attention of his people and says, I want you to be with me, and I want you to go with me, and I want you to know that I'm with you wherever we go. That this isn't you off in the distance. We often think of these hard times or troubled times, and we'll give words like the wilderness season. Except for we forget in the wilderness, you're not alone. God is with you. When you're in despair and struggle, when the season gets at you rough, when you're struggling with anxiety and depression, we forget we're not alone. And what we end up doing is we choose that we'd rather live away from God and be worried than be near Him and trust Him because He said that I'm going to be with you. And I say all that to say this, because God, when he sends uh, his people off of the mountain, what he doesn't send them away with is without reminders. And what, one of the things, probably the biggest thing he does is say, listen, all these other nations, you were just for 400 plus years in Egypt as a slave, and you saw their temples, and you saw where they worship. I want you to have a traveling worship center that goes with you wherever you go. And so he sets up this thing called the tabernacle, which is a really weird term. And I miss this because it's going to come up later. But when Moses is on the mountain, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, it says this. When Moses went up onto the mountain, there was this cloud that covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on that mountain. Here's what you'll see as a, a pattern throughout the Old Testament, and finally when we get to the New Testament, is when God shows up to be with his people, there's a cloud that comes down from heaven, and it covers him and his people in the places where he's going to meet with them. And he starts instructing them on this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, where he is going to rest with his people. And they're going to be able to pack this thing up. And as they're journeying, journeying through the wilderness, they'll be able to take that with them. And when God says stop, they set out the tent. And it's this thing that's about the quarter of the size of a football field. And, and when they set this thing up, they will be able to be in the presence of God as a reminder he is with them. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he says this. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me. Uh, literally a holy place, a sacred place. Uh, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings. There's various equipment that goes into this. Exactly like the pattern I will show you. Here's what I love is he tells his people, I want you to start creating things exactly how I say, because it's going to have purpose and function and meaning. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God creating with purpose and function and meaning. And he places his people in it. And this tabernacle becomes this new kind of traveling Eden where people know that God is with you. You may have left him, but he has never left you. And even as you're wandering... And even when you're out in these weird seasons and crazy stuff and in your anxiety and in your stress and in your isolation and in your loneliness, God's still out there with you. I love this quote from a guy named G.K. Beale. He says, the sanctuary of worship is the engine that propels God's people forward to bless the nations. The sanctuary of worship is the engine that propels God's people forward to bless the nations. He says this, without worship, mission stumbles. Meaning this, if you're not worshiping God, there's a very slim chance you're out doing the stuff God called you to do. And just because you're worshiping doesn't mean you're doing what God called you to do. 
You can out, be out doing really good things and not worshiping God, and none of that's worship. We get our marching orders at the altar, but we march those orders out in our day-to-day life. He says, without worship, mission stumbles, but the fire of worship kindles a persevering passion for mission. When you've been at the throne of God, you can't wait to do the stuff that God's called you to do. When you've worshipped before him, when you've been in his presence, you can't wait to go. It's why we get these scenes with the prophets where they're called into the throne room of God and God says, I have this giant plan, who will go? And from the back of the room, jumping up with the arms in the air, here am I, send me, I want to go, I want to do it. Why? Because I know I don't deserve it. When you worship a God, you know you don't deserve to be in his presence because you've been out running. And he's welcomed you in. And he asks if you want to be a part of it. There's something inside that says, I'm ready. And if we miss this as we think about the tabernacle and the temple and eventually Jesus, what we'll forget is worship is not just a place where we go feel good for a little bit of time because we sing songs we like with lyrics that inspire us. It's where we encounter the presence of God. It's where we get wrapped up in how incredible he is and how awesome he is and how much bigger he is than the blip of time of history that your life will take on this earth. It's where we're reminded that even though it's just a blip or as Jesus says, like grass that withers, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, what we remember is while it's here, it's going to matter and he's going to do something with it. This sanctuary that he talks about is uh, literally in the Hebrew, it means a sacred place or a holy place. What he says is, there's going to be a place again where I am going to be with you. He's going to meet here with his people. Here he's going to speak with his people. There's mission and there's purpose and there's calling. And it's all spoken here. When people come to encounter God, he speaks and sends them out. Every detail meticulously measured, the construction of this thing, and the supplies are specifically chosen, and the process is strictly instructed. God knows what this is going to look like. He has a plan. We can't decide, well, we want to paint the room orange. You don't get to paint the room. God says what it's going to be. I think that corner needs a fern. It doesn't need a fern unless God says it needs one. You don't change the plans. You don't switch the material. Whatever God said is how it's going to be. It's his house of worship. You're going to meet with him. Do it the way he wants it. And watch what happens when you do. Exodus goes on and discusses these three unique spaces that are built into this tabernacle. And I'm excited for us to walk through it. And there's some specific furniture that goes into it. This is actually a recreation on the top half of what that tabernacle would have ended up looking like. Inside that building, there's a small square room called the Holy of Holies, and uh, out in front of that, there's a place called the Holy Place. You can kind of see, I don't know, with the, anyways, and then outside of that, there's a place called uh, the Outer Courts, and I want us to walk through those three different areas, because sometimes we can think, oh, it's a bunch of stuff, it doesn't matter. Here's what I think. If you like the History Channel, tonight may click some buttons for you. Because there's some stuff that's wired into the history, the actual structure, the instructions that tells a story that's bigger than brick and mortar. Or in this case, tens and posts. Tremper Longman, who's a a theologian, says this, As one walked into this tabernacle, he would have symbolically transformed from an earthly location into a heavenly one. This was meant to usher people into the presence of God, while you're out wandering and you don't know where you're going. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know why you're out here. You don't know how long it's going to take until this is all over. If any of that sounds familiar, it's Israel wandering through the Exodus. And for a lot of us, it's 2020. And you don't know what's happening. But God still shows up and he's meeting with us. Which means it's not lost and we're not lost. If God knows where we are, then we're not lost. And if we're with God, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. Uh, The first room I want us to look at is this room called the Holy of Holies. This room would have been symbolic of the throne room of God. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 verse 24 
uh, when he's given the instructions for this, he says he placed on the east side of the garden, right? And this is all the way back, right? Genesis chapter 3, this is the garden. On the east side of the garden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Meaning once people walked out, they couldn't get back in because God had stationed these angels standing there waving their sword saying, you can't come in. What's interesting is, is to get into this room, to this place called the Holy of Holies, which you were supposed to enter one time a year. You were supposed to encounter God, only one person in a specific way, at a specific time. This wasn't a revolving door where everyone could just come in and check it out. There was a way to enter. There was a way you were supposed to dress. There was a way you were supposed to cleanse yourself. There were things you were supposed to bring in. This was all laid out and it was ordained because walking into the presence of God is not just something that we take lightly. It's an intentional step. There's preparation involved. There's a holiness to it. And as you walked into that room, there was a curtain that reminds us a lot of that Genesis chapter 3. This curtain was the only way into the Holy of Holies, and it was a curtain masterfully woven that hung on the east side of the room. On the east side of the garden, God sets these angels waving these flaming swords back and forth. You can't come back. And in the curtain that leads to the Holy of Holies, God says, I want you to weave cherubim in there. I want angels in gold thread so that you're reminded that you walked away, but that you get to come back. On that curtain was placed this uh, 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 angel. It says it was by a skilled worker. It's not placed where it's taken lightly, but God does remind us that to a limited, extremely intentional level, we're still invited in. It's a curtain with the intention for limited entry, but it is a gate to enter. And as you walked into that room, there was one thing. Now, any Indiana Jones fan knows what comes next is this the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark of the Covenant is crazy, and I wish I could go into it more, but we've got more important things to talk about. There was only one thing in that room. You walked in, and the spotlight was in one area on one thing. This box that God tells Moses to design to extremely intentional dimensions, extremely intentional materials, tells him exactly how it's going to be put together, how you're going to carry it, what it's going to look like, what it's going to be built for, and what to put inside of it, how you're supposed to handle it, how you're supposed to travel with it, what's supposed to happen, how you're not supposed to do it. This isn't the same word used for Noah's Ark. That's a whole different word. Here's what I love, though, when I was trying to figure all this out. The Hebrew word for Noah's Ark is the same word uh, that's used... Um, when uh, for a, a basket or a container when uh, Moses' mom sends him down the river. It says it sent him down the river in a basket. It's the same Hebrew word. It basically says he sent him down, she sent him down the river in an ark, which is unique because that's going to be the child that comes back on his own while everyone else is slaughtered because Pharaoh's crazy to redeem and save God's people. It's got some Noah stuff in there. This ark means a chest or an ornate box for sacred items. It's a chest with reminders of God speaking and his meeting with his people. And that is what he uses this place for. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, he says this. He says, There above the cover or the lid put two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law. I will meet with you and I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. It's here. At this place, on this thing, this is where I'm going to come be with you, and this is where I'm going to come speak with you. He doesn't say the thing that you create that you think looks great. He says on the thing that I'm doing. And some of us need to keep those kind of reminders in our mind. It's not coming to bless and meet with and speak into the world that you're trying to create. He's asking you to do the things he's asked you to do, and that's where he's going to come meet with you. You may hate it, you may wish it away, you may wish it was different, look different, acted different, different roster on the team, but this is what it is, and this is what God's called you into. That's where he's going to meet you. Israel gets in a, a rhythm or a rut in thinking that it's furniture for treating it like a lucky charm when they go into battle. They'll go into battle and know that they're out, man, and they're like, I don't know, we got that box from God, maybe that's a thing that'll help us. 
So they'll march it out front, and they lose miserably. And at the beginning of January, we'll talk about some of this stuff again in that story. This is no magical box. It's a reminder that God hasn't left them. And the hard part in Israel, they do with this what we do with prayer sometimes. We're like, well, we can pray, so let's just pray for like winning lottery tickets. And let's just pray for God to give us tons more money and more blessing and some crazy thing to happen so we can move ahead in life. And let's see if we can rub the magic lamp and see if God will do whatever we want, except for that's not the purpose. It's not genie's lamp for you to get whatever you want. It's your place to go find out what he wants. It's your place to be with him, not for him to align his way to you, but for you to be reminded your way needs to be aligned with him. This may not be Eden in this tent, but God wants them to still know that he's still in his presence and he is still speaking and they know where to find him. Now, if you move outside of the uh, Holy of Holies, you would enter into a place that's, so the Holy Holies would be there on the left, on the right. That would be this room that they called the Holy Place. And in that Holy Place, be reminded, it's not about the room itself. It's about what's in it and what it means. Just like Eden is not just necessarily about a garden. It's about who's in the garden and what it means for us to be there with him, right outside of the throne room of God, a meeting place where every detail reminding the priests of the awe and the wonder of God. There's three intentional pieces of furniture that show up in here. Uh, in the Holy of Holies, there's one. It's the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of God, this image that uh, God's feet rest there. So this is the bottom of his throne room, and the rest of him is up in heaven. This next room out is a reminder of this weird in-between place where God's people can actually be with him. Now, it's just for the priests, but it's a place that has these intentional pieces that they interact with. Here's one of them. The first one is the lampstand. Right? It looks to us like a Jewish menorah. We see it around Hanukkah time. Uh, it's this uh, one shoot. Right? It's a tree with these six branches that grow off of it. It gives us this image of an almond tree. An almond tree was the first tree to, to bloom of the year. February is when its blossom grows. So it's this idea that the first thing out of death of winter, the first thing that life comes out of is, is God. Right? It reminds us with Jesus that the thing that comes out of the death of the tomb is the firstborn, who's Jesus. And these almond blossoms, that's what the tops would have been like where the oil was in there. And it was set to be an everlasting flame that the priests would to attend to it so that the flame never went out because the Spirit of God never goes out. But they served it, and they worked it, and they had to be present for it. They had to be intentional with it, because when you're intentional, you'll see the presence of God. You know when you're intentional in your prayer life, the thickness of the presence of God that you feel, and you know when you slip out of rhythm because it feels a little thinner. And when they're constantly working, and they're constantly involved, and they're constantly filling the lamp, and they're constantly being filled by the one that's asking them to do it. When they're serving, when they're on mission, they're being filled. There's one source of light in this tabernacle, in this tent. It's only by the life that God gives and the light God offers that we're able to see. And in this, we have one lamp, who's Jesus. Remember, we said it last week. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This thing's held up because the vine runs straight up through it. The branches come off of it, and it's beautiful, but they fall if the branch falls. It's this image of God showing up. The second thing that we see that's in there, and it would have been right across the room uh, from this, so kind of that's the way you're looking. Uh, if you were to turn, you'd see this. It's called the uh, uh, table of bread or the table of showbread. And here... This is God's dwelling place, and I love this. In God's dwelling place, he sets a table. And this place was where there's 12 loaves that are supposed to be laid out and baked. And uh, there's really no, we don't get a really good sense for how it all went down. But here's one of the things that I enjoyed reading was, is that the priests would bake bread and they would have to bring it in. They couldn't, the bread couldn't be out more than a week. And so they gave this image of, they would lay this bread before God. 
But then the bread needed to be eaten so a new piece would come. And that God sets up this table to be a constant, uh, uh, continual rotating place where his priests had to come eat before him. Where they had to sit and eat this bread as they placed new bread. That they continued to commune with God as they brought sacrifice. And when they brought sacrifice, it blessed them when they came to eat it as they brought more to sacrifice. And this continual moval, if you've been in prayer, if you've sacrificed, if you've given, you know it. When you bring before God what belongs to him and he blesses you out of it. And then you bring more so that he blesses you and you bring more so that he blesses you. This isn't an elaborate meal. It's not something with exotic animals and wild stuff from ever. He just says, bring me bread. Just bread. Simple bread. I just care more that you come and eat with me than you come and bring some elaborate meal. All I want you to bring is bread. Just make sure that you keep coming. The third thing in that room, and this would have been right before you enter into the, uh, uh, the Holy of Holies, is this altar of incense. And this One of my favorite pieces in here, directly in front of this cherubim curtain leading to the footstool of God was a place of prayer. God puts, before you come into the throne, you have to pray. Even on the days you can't physically walk into the presence of God, you can pray. And he brings this incense. It's a mix of fragrances that Scripture, he even tells his people, don't recreate this for any other purpose. This uh, mix of smells belongs only in the temple. And he says, as you do this, what it gives. Now, if any of you were in college with anybody, whether it was you or a friend that lit incense in the room to cover the smell of who knows what, and we don't have to go there here in church, right? But you've seen incense. It's that thick smoke, and it goes up, and then it kind of disappears, right? And depending on how much other thick smoke was in the room, uh, you know how that smoke disappeared too. But here's the image that that smoke gives at this altar of incense, is it's our prayers being brought before God, and those prayers visually being able to see Him taken up to where they disappear because God takes them and He receives as He's listening to the people of God. He looks at this and He says, I want there to be a place where prayers, our words to Him and His words to us, is central before the throne. He doesn't just expect us to come to Him in prayer. He makes room for it. There's an intentionality to say prayer is essential. Prayer is important. Prayer needs to happen. And in fact, I'm going to put something right before my throne so you know you're invited to pray. Then outside of that are this area called the outer courts. The outer courts was the outdoor area. It's where the sacrifices took place. It's where any Israelite could walk into to bring before God what they had. This was the place in the whole tabernacle complex that anyone could walk into. While there are reverent restrictions on certain places in the tabernacle, God intentionally designs a place where any one of his people could enter. I love this, that God designs his place of meeting with his people. The people that ran away from him. Uh, The people that thought we could do better on our own. The people that have distanced ourselves from God. And insert your own story here. Ran away, walked away, fell away, was shamed away, feel too much guilt to be close. So we've walked away. And he says, no, in my temple, where I'm going to be with my people, I want a place where anyone can walk in. Which is why we hear psalms like this, Psalm 80, or 84, verse 2, where he says, My soul longs, and yes, even faints. I get so excited I could pass out for what? The courts of the Lord. Just to be in that tabernacle or that temple, just to be in his presence, my soul longs. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. He goes on in verse 10 and says, For a day in your courts, a day in your courts, in your tabernacle, temple, courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, in the tabernacle of my God, than in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather sit outside the gate of the place of worship than be anywhere else. Because the courts is where God says, even though you're a sinner, you can come in. Even though you don't belong, you belong. Even though you think you can't, you can. And in this area, he puts two pieces of furniture. The first one's an altar. This is where the sacrifices were made. People would bring the best of what they had before God, kill it before the Lord as an offering of what we value, 
and to offer that to a God who is most valuable. For farmers to bring the best of what they had. For us, oftentimes, it's just a portion of money of the best of what we had, unless you've got cattle that's really uh, expensive and pricey, and you can do that. We bring our best before the Lord. And here's what I love. It basically just goes on a giant barbecue, and it gets burnt up. It's done. It's not like you get invested in incredible things. This is a place where you come bring your best, lay it before God, light it on fire, and watch it burn so you can be reminded of who God is, and even your best stuff can be brought before him, and he'll sustain you with whatever's left. After that, there's this wash basin where you can clean your hands and your feet after sacrificing from the sin altar. Uh, I wish I could go into it more, but there's really cool ties between uh, cleansing yourself here to go serve in the temple and what Jesus does when he washes his disciples' feet before he goes and dies as a sacrifice. After leaving the altar where your sacrifice happens, where salvation is represented, there's a cleansing for works of service in the holy place in the Holy of Holies, this surrender, there's a purifying that happens before you enter the presence of God. The outer courts were a place where God's place of inviting a sinful people into the presence of God. You could sacrifice and be saved here, and you would purify yourself so you could go serve further. When they finished making this tabernacle, something we've seen before happens again. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered this tent of meeting, and the Lord, glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. It was too thick, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Something they created with their hands because God told them to and they obeyed and did it. God's glory filled it so much they couldn't enter. And we can think that God's done in 2020. That he's not working. That he can't use us. Some of us just need to get back and do what he called us to do to build what he's called us to build so that when he fills it we see his presence. It says, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, they would set out. When the cloud leaves, we're following it. Right? God, when you move, I move. Just like that. It had to happen. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. God, if you're not leaving, we're not leaving. If you go, we go. If you stay, I'll stay. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. We might be wandering in the wilderness, but we don't have to wonder if God's with us or not. We might be struggling in the unknown, but we don't have to wonder if God's with us or not. Uh, Peter ends, uh, who's another theologian, says this. He says, The tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance. Not just because of the sacrifices and offering within its walls, but simply because of what it is. It's a piece of holy ground amid a world, amidst a world that's lost its way. That God is still here. But as the rest of the New Testament or Old Testament takes another turn, this tent and its contents become more of a superstitious, magical emblem than it does a dwelling place for God. How easily can we turn our prayers into magical incantations like it's Harry Potter, hoping that if we say the right words and that we sound good, then God will grant us our wish. But if we say them wrong and we don't sound eloquent or we didn't hit the right rhythm, God's not going to do it. How easily can we turn our sacrifice into a bargaining chip for favor? God, I'll give you this if you give me that. But God, I've already done this. Why haven't you shown up and done that? Rather than a selfless act of worship before the deserving God Almighty. How easily do we take for granted the presence of God in our everyday lives rather than embracing His presence in all that we are, in all that we're doing. Now, once Israel is settled into their land, they build a permanent building. At this time, people have looked back and said that building in its time would have been a man-made wonder of the world. It would have been worth traveling to because you would have never seen anything like it. It would have brought awe in you when you saw this facility that was built to the temple of being of God's people. But there was still an emptiness in practice. 
rather than a fullness of his presence. Uh, That temple falls captive 500 years before Jesus as Israel falls into captivity of Babylon. Uh, Later they try to rebuild it. But it was missing so much of the furniture pieces I just mentioned. Namely, what it's missing is the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what ends up happening. They build this incredible structure. They rebuild it two, three times larger than the original one. And they fake it, hoping they can make it, that as long as it looks good on the outside, that it's going to be good. But in uh, the Talmud, which is a a Jewish uh, reading, it says, uh, when they're talking about the commentary at this time, it says, from that time to this new temple, it had no ark, therefore it had no divine presence, it had no divine spirit, and it had no fire from heaven. They built the right space, but they were missing the presence. So often we can be people who, instead of pursuing the person of God, settle for getting close enough to the things of God. And in the process of wanting to be spiritual or religious, we miss just being His. It's in this huge new building that there's an emptiness in the tabernacle of the presence of God. They built it impressive, but His presence was missing. They literally say the smoke wouldn't come down anymore because He wasn't there. But they kept going, and they kept bringing their offerings And they kept worshiping, and they kept praying, even though he wasn't showing up. Isaiah gives them a sign to be looking for. He says, therefore, in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, Hebrew, meaning God with us. There may be no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. There may be no smoke or fire. The presence of God may not fall, but He's coming. And 600 years of waiting, if you feel like 2020 was a long time, 600 years of waiting for God to show up. We know He's coming. God promised it. He doesn't fall back on His promises, so we're waiting. We end up with Jesus being wrapped in clothes, Sheep's clothes, sacrificial lamb's clothes, and laid in a manger because no one made room for God upon his entry into the world. They were trying to kick him out of space in their life and garden, and they got kicked out. Here, Jesus shows up, and no one's got room for him there either. But I love this. Jesus comes, and he replaces what was represented and what was lost in the tabernacle. What I mean is this. In the tabernacle, the altar doesn't mean anything anymore because Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says, For by one sacrifice he was made perfect forever by those who are being made holy. And where these sins have been sacrificed for sin is no longer necessary because Jesus died on a cross. You don't need to bring a goat or a lamb anymore. What he did was sufficient for anything you could do. You just need him. Then there was the wash basin as you go the step further. And this wash basin was a place of purity where we kind of wash away the the grossness of that sacrifice so we could enter into a pure place. But 1 John chapter 1.19 says, all we have to do is confess our sins. Get it out. God, here's what I've done. God knows what you did, but you know just like me, it's harder to say to a person or out loud than it is just to hold it in. He says, just get it out. Free yourself of that sin and bring it before me. And when you do that, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't need to go find the wash basin in the Middle East. We've got Jesus. And then if you go a step further, you end up in the holy place. Now what I love is we get entry into that because of Christ. This table of bread, Jesus declares in John chapter 6.35, He says you don't need to go to the table anymore that's just for the priests because I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. You've got access 24-7. And then across the hallway, there's the lampstand. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, and I will have the light of life. But don't forget, in his sermon, he says, and don't forget, church, you're the light of the world. 
Because you've been with me, you carry that light with you. And don't hide it somewhere, but put it in a proper place so that it gives light, or can we say it this way, so that it blesses everything that's around it. Because God has been with you, and you have been with God, and wherever you are shows people where he is. And here's one of my favorites, this curtain that nobody could enter except for one person one time a year that was so holy and reverent. We're not allowed in. You and I couldn't go. You had your great, 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 great times like 47 had to be Aaron. My guess is ours wasn't. We don't have access. But I love this story because in Matthew 27, it's the scene of Golgotha with Jesus on the cross. And in verse 50, it says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. And at that moment, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We have access There's nothing that separates the people of God from the presence of God. He's fully come to be with his people. Fully. Right? It's not about the priest that gets to go in and he gets to pray. You get to go and you get to pray. I love this because the altar of incense, the place where we get to pray before we go in, here's the invitation we get in Hebrews chapter 4.16 in Christ. He says, let us then approach The throne of grace, that's temple language. Let's march right in to the throne of God with confidence, not fear and trembling, not because you don't belong, not because you messed up, not because you're not good enough. Come in with confidence for a purpose so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our deepest struggles, in some of our worst crises, in some of our worst seasons of life, we miss the most important invitation that God's ever given us, that we've got access to him. We get to be with him. We get to pray to him. We get to come to him. We get to lay everything before him. We get to receive him. We get to carry him with us as we go. That when Jesus died, he died once and for all. We don't have to keep trying to make him happy. He's pleased with us. He loved us so much or in such a way that he came. He made that decision before he showed up. And some of us struggle without him. And what we're reminded in Jesus is that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that, 2020 church, we could receive mercy. Some of you need it. So we could receive grace. We need reminded to help us in these times of need. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have a confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. This is all temple imagery. By a new and living way open for us through a curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sanctified to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure. What he's saying is you don't need a traveling tabernacle. You don't need a temple. You don't need to go find God somewhere. You need to approach him. you got to close your eyes and encounter him. Some of us need to open our eyes and see that he's already there. To be with him because he came from heaven to die so he could be with us and he could be our God and we could be his people. And God isn't done with the idea of dwelling places, with the garden or the tabernacle or the temple. I love in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, it gives you this image of this cloud that's showing up and it's swirling around, came from heaven and it filled the whole house they were sitting in. God likes to fill places when he shows up. It says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. Not a giant pillar that falls on a building. Little pieces of that same fire that are now falling on his people. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. The cloud from heaven did not rest on the building, but on the people. The fire didn't fall on the Holy of Holies. It fell on His people. And the Spirit didn't fill the rooms of the tabernacle. It fills us, His people. That's why when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he needs to remind them, because we need reminded, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You're walking around with him here. When you're talking, he's there. You're a reflection of who he is. You're an ambassador of Christ. You're a temple of God. With all the stuff that God puts purpose and planning and intention with in those buildings, he puts in our lives. We are walking temples, God's spirit dwelling in us. The Christian life is not a small thing. When you surrender your life and you receive Christ, God consecrated a new temple that He's going to dwell in. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers do not have to travel to a building to encounter the presence of God because you're there. You carry the presence of God in you, so don't underestimate His importance, His reverence, and His power that's so strong within you We need to be reminded that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in who we are. And that's not just saying, oh, praise God, that's so exciting. That informs your everyday. It shakes who you are, and it shapes who you are. The people you work with are broken, lost people that need Christ. You're the temple that they get to go to so that they can counter the Spirit of God that's in you. In your families, your Christ, in your neighborhoods, you've brought a temple into the neighborhood. You don't have to buy up real estate to build a church. You're there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Let's stand. I'll read this and we'll pray. Colossians chapter 1, 27. He says, To the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's chosen to make known the unbelievable work that he's doing in you. In you. Not the person next to you that prays more that's holier than everyone else. Not hoping that someone that's a couple rows behind you prays more than you do and maybe that's where God's going to show up. It's in you. Peter reminds the church, Peter who walked away from Jesus while he was dying, And was brought back into ministry and had incredible ministry with the rest of his adult life. Reminds the church in 1 Peter, you are God's chosen people. You are the holy priesthood. You are a people belonging to God. My hope tonight is just to set a reminder and to light that same fire that the priest would have lit on the lampstand. So we're reminded that he never stops He never stops. He's not stopped in 2020. His light never went out. The flame didn't go away. The illumination so we can see the world clearly didn't go out. We just started looking at social media and news and our favorite conspiracy theorists instead. We turned from Christ and listened to everyone else. God's stable. He's on his throne. He's not shaken. He's seen worse than this. And he's still optimistic. And he's still filled with hope. And he's still offering invitation. So as we come to Christ tonight, my prayer is this, is that you would be reminded you're not just a lowly person that he swooped out of the gutter and now you're lucky enough to be in his presence. You're a temple of God. He dwells in you. He's doing stuff in you. He's working through you. People are looking at him because they've encountered you. Live like it, church. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Not spiritual practices, not rituals, not places. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
That's not a cocky, arrogant statement from a guy who thinks he's God. It's an invitation for a world that's walked away from him that all we've got to do is pursue him. And we've got it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, tonight, Father, we come grateful for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we need you. We've needed you and we'll continue to need you. And you know better than anybody that we'll walk away. You know better than anyone we're not going to get it perfect. You know better than anyone uh, that, that we are, uh, that this idea of a living sacrifice because we roll off the altar and we take off running. But God, would we bring ourselves back to you tonight? Father, I pray that we would be able to see the importance of who we are because of what you're doing. God, I pray that you would give us the confidence in our life of knowing that this isn't ours to live, it's yours to live through us, that you would choose us. God, I pray that we would see who you are, that we would have a clearer idea that Jesus, God on earth, living the life to show us how to and teaching us how to, dying on a cross, rising from the grave, ascending into heaven, and coming back for his church. God, I pray that we would be reminded until he comes, we want to show the world and be as much of a blessing because we've been blessed because you've chosen to be with us in Christ. Father, as we worship during this next song, these aren't empty words in lyrics. These are prayer songs before the altar and the throne of God Almighty. Lord, let them rise up to you. Would you take them as our sacrifice, as our offering, for us to be reminded who you are, how important you are, and how much you matter in who we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.